Uh, we are finishing up our series on what we believe, and our hope and our prayer uh, is that we would continue to be a church that grows stronger and stronger in these core foundational truths um, of our faith, that we wouldn't fall into um, a trap of relativistic truth, but rather we would stand firm on God's truth as the absolute truth of our lives. We wouldn't fall into the, the trap of relativistic truth, which is you know, to say, wait, what's true for me is not necessarily true for you, and what is true for you is not necessarily true for me, but somehow at the end of the day, we just got to get on with each other. No, I want us to stand firm on God's truth as the absolute truth. And the truths that we've had a look at uh, will always be something that we continue to grow in our understanding of, but I'm hoping that this series has convinced you that they're not up for consideration that they're not up for debate, that they're not up for redefining, that these are close-handed truths that as Christians we are to die for, that we are to stand firmly on. And so the last truth we're gonna look at um, has had a fair amount and continues to have a fair amount of debate around it. Uh, the main idea in Christian circles has never been debated. It's rather the, the details of how and when uh, it'll all pan out how it'll happen, um, rather has been debated. And so what we're gonna be looking at is the return of Christ this morning, the return of Jesus. And as Christians, we are to unequivocally believe that Jesus will return, that we are not to doubt that he will return for us. The problem is in Christian circles is that some people have an unhealthy preoccupation with us and tend to make the, the details of how and when he will return, uh, they tend to make it a close-handed issue. In other words, if you don't believe exactly what I believe, when he will return and how he will return, then we can't have fellowship, then we can't even be in the same church. I literally have had people leave my community group and my church, my old church back in South Africa because of these finer details. And then you have others on the, on the other opposite extreme who, you know, who, who really don't care about this truth and it doesn't affect their lives in any way at all. And what we're gonna see this morning is that it should. It should have a, prof the return of Jesus should have a profound effect on our lives. And so before we go any further, let's read our statement of faith regarding what we should believe in terms of his return. So it's statement number faith. We'll put it on screen too, in case you don't have your booklet. It goes like this. We believe in a single, visible, and bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth. His second coming will be at a time known only to God and therefore demands constant expectancy and motivates believers to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Finally, we believe that when Christ returns, he will raise the dead bodily and gather all the nations before him for the final judgment of the world. Perfect justice will be served with the unbeliever being eternally condemned to life without God and the believer being eternally united with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And those scripture references provide authority to what we just said and believe. So that's it in, in a nutshell. But what I wanted to do this morning is not look at the various theologies around how and when and, and, all of the and all the debates around that. I want us to have more of a pastoral look at the return of Jesus, meaning how should the knowledge of his return influence and affect us 
in, uh, between now and then. So here's what we're going to see in our passage. Here's our proposition this morning. We'll put it on screen. As Christians, we are to encourage each other, or we can say we are to comfort each other in the knowledge of the return of Jesus. And it seems strange that of all the ways that we are called to encourage each other, of all the ways that we're called to comfort each other, that this would be one of them. We are to encourage and comfort each other in the absolute truth and in the absolute certainty that Jesus will return for us. And so therefore, it's our responsibility to know this truth and to understand it as best we can so that you and I can be a source of encouragement and comfort to each other. Like all of the other foundational truths of our faith, they can be a, a source of great encouragement, but if we doubt them, then where will we place our hope? Especially when it comes to the return of Jesus. If we doubt his return or if we lack understanding of his return, what hope and comfort do we have in this world, especially when things get really, really tough? Or when loved ones pass away or when we pass away one, one day and, and there seems to be no evidence or inclination of his return, and so that's when these, these anxious thoughts and these erroneous thoughts can, can begin to infiltrate our minds and we can begin to doubt these wonderful truths, especially regarding life after death. And so there was a, a young church, and, and by young, I mean very young in terms of their faith and young in terms of their understanding, in the first century in a place called Thessalonica. And uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas, they, they went along and they preached there and they, they just barely got the church planted when they were forced to leave. And so they left this young, impressionable church, which, was then, which then began to doubt and, and began to wonder about some of these core doctrinal issues, most notably around the return of Jesus. And they began asking some questions like, well, well what happens if you die before Jesus returns? And had they possibly missed the return of Jesus was one of the other rumors going around. And if not, when would he come back? And if he came back, would it be clear to everyone that he had returned? And so Paul writes to them to encourage them with the truths of this amazing doctrine that Jesus will return for us. So if you have found 1 Thessalonians, well done. It's chapter four. Won't you read with me from verse 13? goes like this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we're gonna have a look at three points, three points of encouragement or how to uh, comfort each other regarding the return of Jesus. The first one goes like this. Jesus' return gives us hope after death. Jesus' return gives us hope after death. 
And this is one of the big life questions which most people who don't hold to a particular religious view, either they just don't go there, like that's just weird, that's just too awkward, we're just not gonna go there, or they simply state, hey, this is it. Once you die, you die. And then all of the various religions and cults out there, they've all developed some sort of opinion or belief about life after death. And it's that view or that belief system that determines how you live, either consciously or subconsciously in this current day and age. It determines your perspective on life. It determines the hope that you have in life. But if that hope is not in Jesus, who is the exclusive way, truth, and life to the Father, Paul's gonna argue, well, how much hope can you really have? Or that hope is simply a facade. So have a look at what he says in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul's goal is that as Christians, we are not to grieve as those who don't have hope. Now, he's not saying that we're not to grieve at all, but he's saying that our our grieving is to be a little bit different. Our grieving is to be a hope-filled grief. And that hope is that as believers, we will all be reunited again with our Lord and Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what the Christian faith holds to, that through faith in Jesus, all believers will be with God for all eternity in the new creation. That is that this current age, this old creation full of sin and suffering and pain and death will be done away with. In the new creation, we'll all all be together with God in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of joy, in the fullness of peace and being complete. I'm chatting with some friends last night and it's almost unimaginable to think about this, to try and process this. But this is our hope. This is the truth that we're heading towards. And so that's what Paul means when he, when he talks about hope here. Notice too how he describes the death of Christians as those who are asleep. This is a, a very common way the authors of scripture describe the death of, of Christians. Sleep refers to something temporary. It's a temporary state, a temporary state before what? Before we can all be reunited again. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, if you're gonna grieve, Christian, it needs to be a different kind of grief compared to the rest of the world out there. Our hope, our our grief is a a hope-filled grief. Ours is a a temporary grief because as Christians, death is just a, a, a temporary state before we can all be together again. Now, it goes without saying, some would argue and say, well, how do you know, Paul? How can you be so sure, Paul? How can you be so sure that this is going to happen? And how would you answer that question? If you were taken back to the first century to this church who had all of these questions, how would you answer that question? You just gotta have faith, right? It's a good answer, but faith in what exactly? We need need to know this doctrine so that we can be encouraged by it and then encourage others and offer comfort to others. So look at verse 14 as the grounds of our hope. 
He says for, and, the, and, the, and the, the word for there means this is now the reason why we are to have a different type of grief in this world. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, this is what God's gonna do, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. And I, I remember sitting back in my chair as I was prepping this going, oh, that's, that's amazing. But I caught myself thinking, it just doesn't seem real, right? It just seems so out there. But we need to get this into our minds. This, this is going to happen, sunrise. This is, this is not simply theory. This is a prophetic truth about what will transpire one day. But before we get into that, let's make sure we are rock solid on why it's going to happen. The foundation for Jesus coming back with brothers and sisters in Christ who've passed away is the fact, Paul says, is the fact that Jesus died and rose again. But now, notice how Paul describes Jesus' death as death. He says Jesus died, but he continues then to describe the believer's death as, as sleep. He says God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So why does he describe Jesus' death as death, but he describes the believer's death as sleep? Why does he make that distinction? It's because Jesus' death conquered death. Jesus' death conquered the power of death over us to separate us for all eternity from God. This then becomes the crux of the matter. If Jesus hadn't conquered the grave, then we would have no hope at all in this world. In fact, listen to how Paul puts it to the Corinthians. Uh, they were, the Corinthians, wow, that's gonna be a crazy book when we go through that. I mean, they, they, had, they were a messed up church, but there was a rumor going around that um, there, was, uh, there was no resurrection of the dead. And they're saying, well, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then guess what? Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So Paul hears about it and he writes to this, this false doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15, look at this, 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, as I believe some of you are believing, here we go. And if Christ has not been raised, well, here's, here's some possibilities. Your faith then is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, he's saying it's futile. It's futile to be a Christian. It's futile for you to be here. You should be either on Seven Mile Beach or getting ready for your, your brunch. And by the way, if you do go to your brunch, then you'll still be in your sins, he says. It gets worse. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's not temporary. He's saying, that's it. There's no hope of reunion. So everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on in verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, if Jesus didn't conquer the grave and you and I, we're hoping in him, then of all the people in the world, with all of their various philosophies and theologies about life after death, we are of all of them to be most pitied. More pitied even than the annihilationist who simply just says, hey, this is it. Once you die, you die. But here comes the good news. The foundation of our hope in this life and the life to, life to come, look at verse 20, says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits of a very, very large harvest who will be raised. 
Verse 21 says, for as by a man came death, so through Adam and Eve came, through their fall came death, but then he says, by a man, the new Adam, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Okay, okay, okay. But how do we know he did rise from the grave? How do we know that it is a fact? Paul says, but in fact, how do we know it's a fact? So keep your place in 1 Thessalonians. This is, this is a good rabbit hole to go down, so just hang with me. So look at 1 Corinthians 15. He now responds to this. He says, he, that's Jesus, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, he says, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So if you wanna check me up, he's saying, go and find these guys, they will tell you. He goes on, he says, then he appeared to James, his half-brother, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, to Paul. So can you see that the foundation of our faith and our hope, the life, the death, and, and the resurrection of Jesus, is not based on some trivial, airy, fairy faith. No, it's based on eyewitness accounts. We believe and therefore we have hope because this was an actual historical event, not some mystical or metaphorical version of the truth. No, no, Jesus is resurrected in my heart. No, no, it was an actual event. So the, final, so the factual resurrection of Jesus is the grounds for our hope and that our death will be temporary and that all Christians throughout the ages, we will all be reunited again. Which then begs the next question, well, how will this happen? How, how's this actually going to play out? Look at verse 15 back in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then jump down to verse 17, he says, then uh, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Firstly, I love that he says in um, verse 15 that this is a word from the Lord. I mean, because this sounds crazy, right? You're gonna get caught up, you're gonna be in the air. It's like, what? He's, he's, not, he's not talking crazy. He's saying this is a word from the Lord. Paul was divinely inspired to preach, teach, and pen down the very word of God. And he says he's declaring it. I'm declaring this word of God to the Thessalonians and to us. This is from God. This is for our encouragement. This is for our comfort. Now here's how it's all gonna unfold. Believers who are alive, when Jesus returns, will not go before dead believers. He makes this clear, we'll put this on screen. He says, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is where I got a little bit confused. And the reason for that is in verse 14, he said, God will bring with him, that's with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Something, okay, wait a minute. So if they with Jesus, and therefore coming with Jesus, then how will they rise before those who are still alive at that time? 
Like, like what exactly is going to happen? What exactly happens when you die as a believer? Do you go be with the Lord or not? So let's allow scripture to in interpret scripture. You might remember uh, Jesus, when he was on the cross, he said to uh, the nice thief uh, on the one side, he said, uh, uh, in Luke 23, 43, he said to him, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not, not, not at the end of the age, when I come, whenever that might be. No, today you will be with me in heaven. And then Paul himself in Philippians 1.23, uh, he was in prison and he was not sure if he was gonna be executed or not. And he expressed his desire to go be with the Lord, meaning that if he was executed and he, he wasn't at that stage, that he would go straight into the Lord's presence. And there are a host of other verses that tell us that, that, that help us conclude that this must be true of all believers, that at the moment we die, we will go straight into the Lord's presence. Therefore, when Jesus returns, he will indeed bring with him all of those who have passed away throughout the centuries. It's gonna be quite a sight. But it doesn't quite finish the question or answer the question, right? So what will then rise before believers who are alive at that time? So again, have a look at this, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. He's talking about our bodies, when they, they buried, they're, they're perishable bodies, they, they'll be buried, but they'll be raised as imperishable. In verse 44, he says, it is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, he says, there is also a spiritual body. So what Paul is encouraging, comforting believers with is that when we die, yes, our souls immediately go be with the Lord, but our mortal bodies remain in the grave and perish. But upon his return, these mortal, perishable bodies will be raised as new, glorious, imperishable bodies that will be reunited with their souls. And he's saying, that's what's gonna happen first and then secondly, those who are alive at that time will follow with new glorious bodies because Paul also says, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Go back to verse 17, have a look at this. It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, those are now the, the dead who are now re reunited with their bodies, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The words caught up in the original Greek, they refer to being forcefully and, and suddenly seized and grabbed. We're just gonna be suddenly lifted up if we're all alive at that time. And then look at that comforting phrase at the end, he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. It, it doesn't get better than that, sunrise. And so, and so after all of everything we go through in this current age, in this old creation, and so after Jesus appears, after that, we will be with him always. On his return with brothers and sisters in Christ, he will usher in his new creation. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering, no more pain, so before we move on to the next point, 
In verse 13, Paul said that he didn't want us to be uninformed. And then in verse 14, he said, it is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus that provides the foundation for his return, for this doctrine. And so he's telling us, he's telling us to have an, in, an informed faith. That we ought to have an informed faith, especially regarding the return of Jesus. Let this truth inform you. Let this truth inform your mind and your heart and then imagine, just imagine with me how it will affect your life. No matter how tough things get in this current world, you're gonna have an eternal perspective because this is gonna come to an end and one day we're gonna be with the Lord forever. Imagine how it'll affect your dying one day. Yes, I'm guessing there will be a bit of fear, but I'm hoping that as this truth is entrenched in our hearts, it will result in hope. Imagine how it'll affect your grieving towards loved ones in Christ. Yes, we will be sad. We'll be sad because of the separation. We will miss them, but there'll be hope, glorious hope, because we will all be together one day with the Lord always, Paul says. The next thing Paul dealt with was the anxiety that Jesus had come and gone and that the poor Thessalonians had missed his return. So encouraging and comforting point number two goes like this, Jesus' return will be clear to all. In other words, you're not gonna hear, you're not gonna get a Facebook notification that Jesus arrived in Australia and is living in the outback with 20 followers. No, no, it's gonna be a global event, right? Everyone is going to know. So be encouraged, be comforted, Christian. We will know. Paul says it like this in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So Paul emphasizes that it's Jesus himself who is coming. It's not an, an angel with a message. It's not a delegation representing Jesus. No, Jesus the Lord himself is coming. Why? Because it's his triumphant return. It is his return that, that everything that he accomplished on the cross will be fully realized. His big three enemies, sin, death, and the devil will be finally and fully done away with. Therefore, his descent from heaven is much like a, a victory parade, like a, a triumphant commander returning from battle. In fact, that term, the cry of command, was a military term. It was used to call the troops to attention. So we could say it was a call to the dead in Christ to rise and to those who would be alive at that time to pay attention, join the line, come join the parade. The king's coming home. The next reason why we won't miss it, as if that's not enough, is he says there, there will also be this voice of the archangel. Then thirdly, there's this sound of a trumpet, no, no ordinary trumpet, the trumpet of God. One scholar uh, describes how um, trumpets were used throughout scripture. He says they were blown to assemble the people. Whenever there was a festival, a celebration, a convocation, whenever there was a kind of triumph or some kind of judgment, a trumpet was blown. A trumpet in Exodus 19 calls the people to meet with God. The trumpet of assembly, it would be called. 
In Zephaniah and Zechariah, a trumpet is used as a signal of the Lord's coming to rescue his people from wicked oppression. He says it's a trumpet of deliverance. That's why this is a source of encouragement. That's why this is a source of comfort to us. Jesus' return will mark the end of all things that are wrong with this world. Dare I say ourselves as well. It will be final deliverance from sin, death, and the devil. Which then leads to the next big question. Because I was busy studying this, and I'm putting this down going, this is amazing. So when? Right? When is this going to take place? So let's look at our last point together. Jesus' return is imminent. That means it can happen at any time. Many, many people have tried to calculate and prophesy when Jesus will return. All of them have been wrong so far. And I'm guessing all of them will still be wrong. I even knew of someone in our previous hometown back in South Africa um, who believed by reading the book of Revelation and the local newspaper that he had figured out the exact date when Jesus was going to return. He even started a Facebook page and uh, warned everyone, said Jesus is coming back on the 15th of October or whatever the date was, and he warned everyone to be ready because it's going to be judgment day. And unfortunately, like Cayman, it's a small city, and so, you know, everyone knows everyone, and this kind of spread. And unfortunately for this guy, the 15th of October came, and the 15th of October went, and nothing happened. Now, the right thing to have done would have been to apologize and confess that Jesus must be right when he said in Matthew 24, 36, that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, not even the Son of Man in his humanity, but only God. So therefore, it goes without saying that no ordinary human being, as clever as they think they might be, will ever know. And so we're not told when, but sometimes we are told to be expectant. We're not told when. So I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can. Stop wasting your time in trying to figure out how last week's headline and Revelation 13 work together in terms of when Jesus is going to arrive. Rather, we are to be eagerly expecting his return, and Paul is going to tell us what that should look like in just a second. But first, he's going to tell us why we should be expectant. So look at this. We're going to dip into chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. He says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Reason? For you yourselves are fully aware as opposed to being uninformed about what will actually happen on the day. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Pause there for a second. Just let that sink in. The day of the Lord will come. It's going to happen. He's saying, be expectant, be encouraged. But the question is not when, but rather how. He says, like a thief in the night. And so this is a, a gracious forewarning by God. Listen, a, a thief wouldn't be a very good thief if he came and told us when he was gonna come and break in, right? We'd be ready there with a pit bull and a baseball bat. But this is a, a gracious forewarning by God. He's saying, I am coming. 
I am coming back, which then immediately brings up the point as to how then should we live in light of his return. And so what Paul is gonna do now is he's gonna introduce two types of people in lieu of Christ's return. So have a look at verse three with me. He says, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another just as you are doing. Okay, so let's keep it simple because there's a lot of night and day, people falling asleep. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul describes non-believers as being in the dark or as drunkards or as those who are asleep. And the reason he says that is because of their worldview or because of their rejection of the gospel in what they said in verse three. They say, there's peace and security. He's saying, this is the darkened mindset or this darkened belief system. They're saying, hey, listen, this is it. Everything, everything is fine. There's peace and security in the world. In other words, there's no clue or there is a rejection of Jesus and the good news of what he did on the cross and the fact that he will return for us one day. And again, this is a gracious warning to, non, to the non-believer because this hasn't happened yet. And so if you are sitting here, and I'm so glad you're here, and if you're watching this later or listening to this later, this is a gracious forewarning because he says, no one will escape. Escape what? Escape judgment. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. And we will all be held accountable, most notably for our faith or our lack of faith in him. And so my appeal to you, I'm, I'm begging you that you would repent, that you would believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The contrast, how is the Christian then to live in light of Jesus' return? Paul describes us as children of the light and, and, and the day and as, as being awake and as sober Meaning, you know, we've come to saving faith in Jesus. We believe in who he is. We, we believe in what he did on the cross for us. We believe that he will return for us one day. But I think, well, well practically speaking, what does that mean? What should we, how should we live between now and then? He tells us in verse eight. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And he's, well, what does that mean, Paul? He tells us having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's saying we are to live in the readiness of Jesus' return by wearing our armor. And so he gives us a picture of a soldier here. And if anyone had to be 
awake and sober and, and vigilant, it would have to be a soldier because they guarded the city walls, they, they guarded the city gates day and night. And, and as they guarded, they were always geared up in their armor, ready for anything to happen. And that's Paul's point. He's saying, let's be ready. Don't get tempted into thinking, hey, all, you know, there, there's peace and security. Hey, all is well. Don't get tempted into coming down from your post and joining in with the ways of the world. We are to be ready. We are to be geared up in our armor. But our armor is, is a bit different to the soldier. We are to wear a, a breastplate of, of faith and love, he says. The breastplate covers our hearts. One scholar says, no soldier would ever go to battle without his breastplate. No Christian, he says, is to... No Christian is equipped to live the Christian life without faith and love. So how do you live soberly in waiting for Jesus? Well, you gotta guard what you love. You gotta guard your heart. What are you loving in this world? You gotta guard your faith. What are you believing in? Are you living by faith in him and him alone? Are you loving people with the love of Jesus? Not, not our love and not the love of the world, but his love. And then he says, we are to wear our helmet, which is the hope of our salvation. That's why I said earlier, we, we're to live with an informed faith. Know who Jesus is, know what he accomplished on the cross, know that he's coming back, believe that, know who you are in light of that. Know that you are a child of God. Knowing who you are and whose you are translates into how you live this life. And most importantly, your ultimate destiny. Because look at verse 10. He says, talking about Jesus, who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. It's so similar to how he finished chapter four, verse 17, where he says that we will always be with him. The return of Jesus will guarantee that all believers will be with him, will live with him for all eternity in the new creation. But now as I close, there's one more duty that we have to do before he comes. One more thing we have to do in light of his return. He's mentioned it twice, so we better pay attention to it. Look at chapter four, verse 18, and chapter five, verse 11. He says, therefore, in other words, in light of Jesus coming, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So, so the Thessalonian, Thessalonian church, as young as they were in their faith, they were, they were trying to encourage each other, they were trying to build each other up, but he's saying, hey, build each other up. Encourage each other with these words, with this truth, that he's coming back. To encourage means, amongst other things, to, to give courage, to impart courage to someone. So let's give each other courage in these days that we're, that we're living in, with the hope and the comfort that, that death is not gonna eternally separate us from our Lord and Savior. And not just us, but, but also our loved ones in, in, in Christ who have passed away. One day we'll all be reunited. One day we're all gonna be together again in the new heavens and the new earth. Secondly, let's give courage to one another in that we're not gonna miss his return. 
We're not, we're not gonna miss it. We're gonna be snatched up and join in his victorious parade, triumphal return as he ushers in his kingdom finally and fully. And lastly, let's give each other courage to persevere in this life until he returns. Let's give each other courage to be sober-minded, to wear our armor. Some of you might be thinking, well, that, Jason, that is cool. But what about friends and family members who don't know Jesus? What then? As long as we are still in this present age and this, this present dispensation, my encouragement to you is to wear your armor. Wear your breastplate of faith and love. Have faith that as you share the gospel with your family members or your friends or your colleagues, that Jesus will open their eyes to believe in him. Live out his love through you, which is a redeeming love. Trust that he will redeem your loved ones to himself. But to all of us, always remember to wear the helmet of your salvation so that we remain steadfast in who we are and whose we are. Remain steadfast in all of these absolute truths that we've had a look at throughout this series so that we remain steadfast in this life. And we reach out with a redeeming love to bring as many people into the light as possible so that we will all be together one day in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray um, that you have encouraged all of us that it is a glorious, glorious truth that you are coming back and you're coming back for us. I pray for those who have lost loved ones, loved ones who believe you, Lord, that you would encourage them now, comfort them right now in this moment, that hey, this is just temporary. Because of your death and resurrection, this life here is temporary. One day, we will be in eternity with you, all together, reunited, one big family under you. I pray you'd give us courage to reach out to our friends and family members who don't know you, Jesus. Give us the courage to share the gospel. And Jesus, that you would work through us and open their eyes so that they might believe in you, be redeemed, reconciled. We're trusting you for this. Thank you that you have not left us here, but that you are coming back. And one day, We'll be in glory with you where there'll be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain. I pray that that too encourages us, gives us perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you mind standing?